What a blessing. Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue in Exodus this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time today, we've been going through the book of Exodus with that thought, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. We'll have communion later on in our service toward the end of our gathering. In fact, if it's your first time, we'll, I'll preach now. We'll sing at the end. We did that because of all the protocols and things to try our best, endeavor to keep everyone safe, and we know that singing and all the things. Anyway, so we're moving on. We've been a year in this. You got it by now. Things are different because they're different. Here we go. God's Word, Exodus 20. I wonder if um, you would indulge me for just a moment. We last week spent time on the Ten Commandments. If you didn't get to participate with us in that, I encourage you to watch the message um, just to hear the attributes of God brought out in those commandments. Here's a question for you. Did God really speak His Word to the Israelites Himself? Many of us in our evangelical authority and believing scriptures inspired by God because it is would say, of course he did. Well, in fact, today many scholars deny that this is the case. There are scholars that argue that the story of Exodus is not fact, but fiction, a story that the Israelites made up for themselves to explain where they came from. In fact, one popular rabbi, let that sink in for a moment, as this quote, the story of Exodus did not happen the way the Bible depicts it, if it happened at all. Archaeology and biblical history have demonstrated that the Bible is not intended to be taken as literal history. It's a spiritual history, and that is the way modern people ought to relate to the biblical text. This is not some isolated fringe movement anymore in what's described as Christendom or biblical history. This is now mainstream. We see mainstream denominations abandoning convictional truth from God's Word because of the issue of the authority of Scripture. Did God really say that? Let me assure you, if we could stand with the Israelites this morning there at the base of Sinai, they would tell us in great detail about their experience, what they saw, probably what they smelled with the smoke, and what they heard on that day as they were near the mountain. The Lord did, in fact, speak. The Lord said what He meant to say and he means it to govern his people in their everyday life. He means obedience to be the baseline of the conduct of the follower. Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter number 5, thinking back to this day, that the people of God were to hear the word, learn the word, keep the word, and do the word. To our rabbi friend, it's hard to hear something that wasn't said or to learn something that was never spoken, or to keep something that you made up. Without the word, there's nothing to hear, learn, keep, or do. God spoke, and he still speaks today. Today he speaks by his Spirit through the word of God. Yes, God said it. And yes, just like in the Garden of Eden, the enemy still whispers today, did God really say that? We know with Bibles open, the answer is yes. I wonder if Israel knew, though, at Sinai, what all they were 
committing themselves to, if they stopped to consider just how expansive this commitment was going to be. Remember last week in Exodus 19, verse 8, the people all got together and answered and said, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They leapt to promise obedience, but shortly after God began speaking, their hearts were filled with dread. You ever done that? You ever overcommitted? Got really excited, caught up in the moment? I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, let's go back just for time's sake in chapter 20. Look with me, please, at verses 18 through 21. Last week, we really finished on verse 17, but I want us to glance, please, at verses 18 through 21 in the text. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. What's just happened? God has spoken the Ten Commandments, right? God spoke it the first time in the hearing. They stand afar off, and here's what they say to Moses. Um, <laughs> you speak to us, and, and, and we'll listen, but, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people now are standing far off. Are you getting this picture? While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We call it biting off more than you can chew. Have you ever done that? My grandfather said this to me, and I was a concrete thinker as a little boy. Can anybody relate? Boy, your eyes were bigger than your stomach. Now, again, concrete thinker, right? I'm thinking about my eyeball being this big and my stomach, I don't know, being that big as a kid. I don't know how big it was, but it probably bigger than my eyeball. But they would say that to me often as we would go to a buffet and I would just keep like piling on and then, or if we'd go to a cafeteria style and I'll say, yes, I'll have that and that and some of that and lots of this and yes, two breads and the dessert, please. And a sugary drink to go with it. That was, that was me, a little insight into probably some of my tendencies today. That's, that's a word that I heard often from my grandpa. It was a word of, uh, of gentle, loving rebuke because he was having to pay the bill, right? <laughs> Paying for food I didn't eat. But you know, that's kind of what it's like to surrender to the Lord. We, we in fact, do bite off more than we can chew. I, I, I know sometimes it creeps into our praying where we say, well, Lord, we know that you'll never give us more than we can bear. That, that's actually not what the Bible says. In fact, God constantly gives us more than we can bear so that we can depend on him. It's that he won't allow us to be tempted in a way that we cannot resist. And when we are tempted to sin, the Lord will make a way of escape. When you're tempted to not trust the Lord and put your faith and hope in him, God will make a way for you to do it. Israel is committing to God. We do count the cost, but the answer is yes, Lord, because he is God and we are not. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Here it is. It's exactly what you would choose for your life if you could see what God sees and you knew what God knows. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When the Spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree, the songwriter said, and my answer will be yes, Lord, Yes, two words that don't go together. Grace Covenant's heard me say it often. You ready? No, Lord. They just don't fit. 
From this point on in the text, everything that Moses says to Israel was based on this great fact that God had spoken to his people. The law did not come from earth, it came to earth from heaven. And for this reason, the Israelites are obligated to obey. I'm asking you this morning to take God at his word. We're not taking Moses' word for it. We see God himself testify to the truth. Uh, Jeremy already read it in verse 22. The Lord says, you'll say to the people of Israel, you've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. God has spoken. Interesting to me that the Lord will now speak about worship. He's just given the Ten Commandments. The first four were about the covenantal relationship to God and practice and how they would relate to God. Let's see who can remember any of them. The kids got them all right last week. Adults were going, thou shalt not right? But let's see who we got. The first uh, commandment was, right, no other gods before me. Second commandment, don't make any graven images. Third don't take the Lord's name in vain. Fourth, somebody but the balcony, please. <laughs> Fourth commandment, Sabbath. Yeah, so all of these were connected to our honoring the Lord and having a relationship with him that others could look on and say, wow, these people are doing something different and distinct. We learned that the rest of the commandments, there were similar laws in Eastern culture at the time, but no other nation had the first four like God's covenant people did. We're gonna employ this morning inductive Bible study methods that we'll need to when you're looking at Old Testament law, which means we're going to observe and interpret and apply. But we wanna spend a lot of time on observation. Exodus reminds us that God formed a people to display his glory. Same thing he did with you and with me. He teaches them how to live in community with one another. We're tempted when we come to texts like this. By the way, chapter 21 is going to be tough to work through. Some hot button issues there. But we're tempted about when we get to laws on slaves and treating one another this way or that way that we're like, oh, well, let's just skip that. That's kind of weird. Let's, let's go on to stuff that applies today. We don't get to do that. I don't get to do that as your pastor. I get to skip the tough stuff. We need to think about how important this section was to Israel. Remember, authorial intent. This was written to the people of Israel. So it's got to make sense there first before we can leap to apply it to us. They needed some guidelines for living. One of the most important things we can ask when we read the Bible is not what's in it for me, but what does this teach me about God? Let's get to our first point this morning. You're wondering if I was ever going to get their longest intro ever. Here we go. Point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, I tried to keep the point super simple. If we look at Exodus 20 in the verse, first two verses, we've already put them up, but the first point is this, first and foremost. First and foremost, we're talking about worship this morning. First and foremost, the main things, I love when Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are are the main things. First and foremost, remember the text in verses 22 and 23? I'll throw it on the screen for you so you can see it. It's right there in front of you too if you're holding your Bibles. But the Lord is basically saying, I am God. I am the one who spoke with you. I'm not of this world. 
Don't take matters into your own hands because it matters. Do you see it? You've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. God is saying here, don't be innovative outside the bounds of my words. Look at verse 23. We haven't touched that one yet. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Don't don't be like other nations. You are mine. I'm not wanting you to take your cues from culture to shape your worship. Did you hear me? I don't want you to take your cues from culture to shape your worship. That, that might resonate today. I don't know. I, I want you to worship me on my terms. I want your worship to influence other cultures. This is more than don't worship other gods, although the first four commandments are all kind of tied up in the passage we read today. This is more than don't worship other gods, pagan gods. This is this. Listen, don't worship me like the pagans worship their gods. We see the first four commandments, again, tied up right here in this. It's a preamble to these ordinances that are coming, the practical day-to-day stuff. But this is not just a rehash of it because the silver and gold, that's new stuff, right? And the other commandments don't make graven images to me. But the silver and gold, anybody thinking about the song from the Christmas prayer? Silver and gold. Sorry, that's just me. Um, And now you'll be singing that all day. You're welcome. (laughs) In Exodus, in what we're seeing here, the ancient idols that were made were made in the form of things in the heavens and they were made in the form of things on earth and under the sea. They represented various celestial objects as well as birds and animals and fish. But here the emphasis not, uh, falls not on what's being made, but how it's being made. In those days, most idols were made of silver and gold. Some were cast entirely in the precious metal. Others were made of wood and then covered with a thin layer of the precious metal. Either way, the idols that were made were made in such a way that they were beautiful to look at. They were distracting. They were something spectacular. They had visual appeal. We're still that way, aren't we? Many of us are such visually driven people that we're attracted to the glamour and the glitz and celebrity and shiny things. We're like Doug, the dog from Up. We can be straight on in a conversation and somebody says something, we're like, squirrel, right? Just straight on. Uh, you, you know how it is. We're sitting and talking with someone. I meant to bring my phone up for this illustration, but you could be right in a big, deep moment of conversation with a, somebody in Christ, and they're going, oh, yeah, that's a, hold on, I gotta take this. How do you know you didn't see who it was? Right, but they pull their phone out, and they're like, yeah. No, no, I got time, go ahead. <laughs> what? Or they're talking to you and going like, yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening. No, you're not. You, you can't be two places at one time. We're, we love being distracted. We set ourselves up to be dazzled by this world and what it defines as important through our constant scrolling, the images, the flicker of a screen. Before we laugh too hard at these pagan cultures wondering how anyone could bow down and worship a silver eagle or a golden fish, is it any less ridiculous than what we put in front of our eyes for so much of our days? Here's what the science tells us. We're losing our edge. Those shiny distractions are dulling our 
um, focus. They're dulling our senses for the divine. Our spiritual life is suffering. It gets harder to unplug for any length of time and devote ourselves to basic Christianity 101 type disciplines. I'm not talking about super saint stuff here. I mean just reading your Bible and praying every day so you can grow, grow, grow. First and foremost, God is saying, don't worship me like the pagans worship their gods. And then he unpacks it a little bit. Point two, keep it simple. Simple worship. Simple worship. Now, I'm not a fan of when people split up verses to dive into them, but we are preaching the whole thing in context here, so I've got those verses 24a and b. They're not like that in your Bibles. It just means the first part of 24 and the second part of 25 kind of illustrate this point for me. Let me read them to you. You've got your Bibles in front of you. They won't be on the screen, but here's what it says. An altar of earth. He said, don't do silver and gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall not build it, the last part of 25, of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Wait, what? (laughs) I can't wait to hear how this applies to my life today in 2021. Well, I'll get there in a minute, but the principle here is keep it simple. It's a principle we actually take quite seriously at Grace Covenant Church. It's not my doing. It's been since the church's genesis some years ago. We, we don't ignore modern conveniences. We don't ignore modern tools, certainly, that unlock ministry opportunities. It's the reason we're online every week. We're reaching people that we would not otherwise reach. But we work very hard to keep it simple. Because the temptation is when we build something that's ornate and robust that we spend more energy protecting and that uh, more energy invested in maintaining that thing that we've built with our hands than we do actually what we built it for. You've seen it. People worship the creation more than the creator. These are tools for our dominion, things that shouldn't get in the way of worship, and yet how many of us in this building this morning can name some churches that we know in our own lives that have become so paralyzed by squabbles over things, not gospel issues, stuff, assets, buildings, lands, so caught up in this that the glory of God has left the people while they're fighting about the carpet color. The Lord is giving this direction to his people. And here's what he's basically saying. Look differently than the others. The pagan nations constructed pyramids and high altars of finished stone. And they did it for show. And God is calling his people to use what he created for worship. Ooh, application time. You ready? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 that he does the same thing with us as the church today. Here's what he says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? 
They were not allowed to build any old altar any way they wanted to. They had to do it according to God's instructions. We must remember that we are to worship the God of this Bible the way the Bible tells us to worship, not any old way we want. Often this means that what we do in church is different from what's done at a large-scale event. Or, you know, if you really want to reach people, you need to do a TED Talk. God's not called me to do TED Talks. This is different from the world. 30 minutes in the house of God under the instruction of the Word of God has a profoundly different impact than a motivational speech done on a platform with high production. Our thinking about engaging the world around us is so easily warped, namely that we should try to fit in with our culture as well as we can, but just like God told the Israelites not to worship like pagans, he tells us not to pattern our worship after the values of surrounding culture. Listen, Grace Covenant's endeavoring, we're grateful for this building. It's a tool for the glory of God. We try not to let it get in the way of ministry. It does need some care, but God's been so kind to us and favored us that it's not falling apart. Even at 110 years old, we didn't build it. But uh, we're grateful for that. We want to steward it well, but we're not going to let it get in the way of ministry and reaching people with the gospel of Christ. We're working hard to keep things simple. We want you to step in here and it be a refuge from the noise and distraction of the world. If you want a high production show on the weekend, you get that all week long. This is to help you come apart and be still and know that he's God. God should be first and foremost in our worship. Uh, God delights in simple praise and worship of his people as they gather in simple, modest buildings or in the mud of a third world nation. And God desires, third point, pure worship. For those of you doing the math, I'll do less time on the last two points. It's all good. We're going to get it. We're good. God desires pure worship. Verse 26. It's not on the screen. It's in your text. It's already been read. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Here we go again. It's probably not just the middle schoolers wondering about nakedness mentioned here in the Bible. I told Jeremy, I said, your ending passage before you say this is the word of the Lord is nakedness and exposed. Have fun with that. <laughs> right? But we read this in 2021 and we're going like, what? Why is that in there for? Well, worshiping naked? I know this is a stretch for us. But it was actually common in Mesopotamia. When the Canaanites worshipped idols in addition to being done on architectural spectacles that were meant to distract you and meant to dazzle, they worshipped their idols in obscene ways. They combined idolatry with ritual prostitution and other forms of indecent exposure. God wanted his people to be different, to be modest. And boy, this is popular in 2021. Ready? Buckle up. He still does. He still wants us to be modest. You are not the center of the universe. And when you come into the place set aside for worship with the people of God, you are not the center of attention when we gather to worship, nor should you be a sideshow. 
years ago when I was reading an article written by pastors. The question was asked of these four pastors from all different walks of denomination and doctrinal persuasion, if you will. What kind of car should a pastor drive? Don't you love that a magazine article was dedicated to this? It's not an invalid question, right? It was a question asked by this because somebody had too nice a car or a clunker. I don't know. I've never seen anybody complain when the pastor drove a clunker. Uh, but, uh, boy, they, they'll ratchet it up the others. There was one particular pastor who reminds me a lot in the beauty of the way that he could take an intellectual thought and make it super accessible to people like me, non-intellectual, uh, like Pastor D did for years, preaching and teaching here. And here's the statement that pastor made. The pastor's car, clothes, and house should never bring attention to the pastor's car, clothes, and house. We're not the center of attention. We're not a sideshow. I thought that was profound, right? We're not the center of attention. Pagan worship was flashy. See what I did there? in every sense of the word. The God of this Bible was calling his people to a pure worship, one that would reveal him to the onlooker, not draw attention away to the worshiper. If your worship is so animated and so distracting that people watch you and think about you instead of the king, God's calling us to a pure worship, to worship the Lord. Lastly, this morning, the fourth element, sacrificial worship. In verse 24, an altar is mentioned here. The altar of earth, the Bible says in verse 24, do you see it? You shall make for me. We've talked a lot about the altar and the elements, the distinction of the altar, but the most important thing about the altar was what happened on the altar. Do you see it? Your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The altar was the place for making sacrifice for sin. Notice that God mentions these sacrifices almost immediately after giving the law. He's just told in the Ten Commandments, hey, here's a way to live life. Right after that, he says, and worship me, and when you make atonement for sin, wait, what? You just gave us the instruction, but he knows us, doesn't he? We are all sheep led astray like we go our own way, the first option that we have. We are sinners by birth and by choice. God knew they would disobey him and he provided a way for them to atone for their sins and be back in fellowship with him. But the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings were for sinners in need of salvation. Let me walk you back through some Bible history. I'm coming to land this plane. Then we'll sing together. We'll take communion We'll sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. Here we go, ready? In the Garden of Eden, do you remember? The Lord has always provided his people with a way for atonement. When Adam and Eve had sinned, God clothed them with the skins of animals. Well, you can't clothe them with skins of animals without the shedding of blood. There was a sacrifice involved. An altar was made after the great flood. You remember? The world had been judged for its wickedness, but Noah was saved. He steps out of the boat onto dry land and made an altar to sacrifice to God. The patriarchs built altars like Moses did and David did. There was always an altar for God's people to make atonement for sin. But the Old Testament system was insufficient. It had to happen over and over and over. The writer of Hebrews gives us insight into that. Listen to what he says. 
the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect or complete those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased uh, to be offered. Since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer need to be cleansed. No, no, no. These sacrifices are there of a reminder of our sins. Even though it was incomplete, it was pointing to Jesus. Do you see it? You're already there. I know you're there. You're smart. It's pointing to Jesus to make atonement once and for all. The Bible says that God presented him, Jesus, as the sacrifice and the atonement through faith in his blood. When Jesus was crucified on the cross outside the city, he made an atoning sacrifice on the altar of God. In fact, the Bible refers to Jesus in Romans 3 as the altar, Hebrews 13 as well. He is the burnt offering that made atonement for our sins. One last scripture and then I'm closing in prayer. Listen carefully. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, wow, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, Christ didn't need to come. Let me give it to you this way, young people, following along. If, we, if that would have worked, Jesus wouldn't have needed to have come. If the sacrificial system was really getting it done the way it should have gotten it done, there would have been no need for Christ to come as a babe in a manger, to live a spotless, sinless life. There was no room for him in the city, in the, in the inn when he was born in a manger. There was no room for him in the synagogues when he taught that he was the way, truth, and the life, and he was the only way to the Father. There was no room for him outside the city when he was crucified. They didn't crucify him in the city. They put him outside the city, but thank God on the third day there was no room for him in that borrowed tomb of Joseph Arimathea and he got up raised victorious our crucified yes but resurrected king remember God's law is still important for us today living under God's law not only satisfies his people it displays his glory to those that are around us but right after God delivered his law he knew they would sin he called them to worship and to get into his presence can I tell you this morning, on this March morning in 2021, that God is still a speaking God, speaking through his word, and he's calling us to worship him in spirit and in truth. He's calling us into his presence by his spirit. Here's how we come, by way of repentance and confession and faith and trust in him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Did God really say this? Did God really want Israel to be set apart? Yes. And he set us apart today as a peculiar treasure in this world, but not of it. For those of us who put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we follow him, we learn to love God and others. Watch this. In a way that's simple, pure, and sacrificial. Let's stand together. Father, take this word this morning and pierce us. As the musicians are coming now, we're preparing our hearts to sing songs that are a response of worship.
to your word, just like we saw play out here, right after Israel got the law of God, you called them to worship. We just heard your word, and you're calling us to worship you this morning. Father, I pray we do it in a way that's simple, it's pure, profound in that it's sacrificial, but Lord, most of all, that we put you first and foremost in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Let's sing together.